0: Who is Jesus Christ? Who do you believe that he is? Question two, what is the Christian life? What is it all about? How should I look at it? How does it function? What is it? I assure you before God that these are ultimate questions. Your eternal life hinges on what you know, on what you believe, on what you trust, and how you orient your life to the person and the work of Jesus of Nazareth. If you are wrong about who Jesus is, if you are confused about who Jesus is, you are in grave danger. And if you, as a follower of Christ, are confused about how the Christian life is designed to work, how it functions, what it is, how one is to live it, you too are in serious danger. So as I pose these questions to us as a congregation today, it is more than probable that there are some here among us in this auditorium who are mistaken about who Jesus truly is. Some of you have a relatively accurate view of Jesus, but have not thrown your trust upon him as Lord and Savior. You've not yet been reborn by the living Christ. Or, you may know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, but you are more confused than you realize about the nature of the Christian life. There are perceptions that you have, there are conclusions that you have drawn that are just confused and inaccurate. And let me consider one more possibility. It's a painful one to discuss. And I hope very much that it never happens among us as a church. But there is a strong possibility that some in this auditorium today who profess faith in Jesus will one day fall away from Him, they will stop believing. They will quit the Christian life. They will forsake Jesus and the life that he saved his people to live. Now I want us to consider carefully at the outset of this series that the book of Hebrews is written in the interest of all of these concerns. This is why we have this book before us. The book bursts from the starting gate with an exalted declaration of who Jesus is. And the book continues to unfold the nature of the life that Jesus redeemed us to live. So Hebrews is written to help us persevere in our faith in fellowship with the local church, which is designed and positioned to keep us from drifting away from the faith. An ever-present danger one we need to fear, but one we need to face. I was thinking, drift away. It always brings one scene to my mind, in a literal sense. Beth and I were privileged to spend several days of our honeymoon at her late uncle's lake home. And one afternoon we took a pontoon out and the wind blew a large beach ball kind of water toy out of the pontoon onto the lake and there it began to just ride on the surface of the water and drift away from the pontoon. Beth jumped into the lake and started swimming after the ball to recover it. She's not a very strong swimmer but that didn't concern her because she's going to catch the ball and float on the ball. Well, as she swam, the wind continued to push the ball along the surface of the water just out of her reach. And I'm in the pontoon and recognize she has gone further than she can get back. And she's never going to get that ball. Was I ever glad that the motor on the pontoon started? Because I put it in fast and got there as quickly as I could and nothing happened. But I think about it once in a while and it gives me panic to this day to just think, what if on your honeymoon, as she began to drift away from the safety of the pontoon, the danger grew increasingly significant. We just laugh about it today, it's not a big deal. But you see this, you get the sense in that little story true story by the way not made up but had one thing gone wrong had distraction been there the motor not started or something of the like the drifting away would end very tragically in a far more serious sense and i say that with underline in a far more serious sense christians can drift away from jesus They can drift away from life itself, the life that he saved his people to live, and the destructive consequences can be eternal. The book of Hebrews is written to help us work together as a local church to avoid that tragic outcome. By the grace of God and provision of the Spirit, we are to keep one another from drifting away. And this book and its truth helps us to that end. Before we dig into the opening sentence of the book, it will help us to consider here now a few of the historical setting ideas, uh, some of the background here as we consider it. First of all, as probably well aware, many who would know the Bible, that the author is unknown. The Greek style is so distinct from that of the Apostle Paul's that few scholars hold to Pauline authorship today. I think Paul, Apollos is a very intriguing possibility, but we cannot really know. Whoever wrote it, the style of Greek reveals unusual skill and superb education. The recipients, mostly Greek-speaking Jewish converts, with a solid understanding of the Old Testament scriptures. The scriptures are quoted routinely, quoted from the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, without much explanation many times, and it indicates a congregation, or, we're not sure, possibly congregations that knew one another, who are steeped in the Old Testament Scriptures. They know their Bibles well. These individuals, very possibly, an argument can be made, were living in or around Rome, where it was very difficult to be a Jewish person living in that area at this time, But to be a Christian was far, far worse. They had faced persecution, we find from the book, but they're going to face a lot worse, God knows, uh, providentially. And so this book, to them, helps them to face that persecution and not drift away from Christ. One of the reasons that believers drift away from Christ is because there's so much against Him, so much against His people. And I wonder, Christian, if you have been there somewhere in your Christian walk, somewhere in your struggle. You reach that difficult and unhappy place in your Christian walk where the zeal has faded and the doubts have settled in. Maybe they're doubts about who Jesus is. Many times they're they're not doubts about the rightness of Christianity or the lordship of Jesus, but just a growing dullness Wondering about the difficulties, the risks, always being on the outside in this culture and time. And you ask the question in your mind, maybe it's just easier not to live the Christian life. Maybe it's just easier to trust, I've got a ticket to heaven, and I'll just leave it at that and to begin to drift away. That's where they are. That's where these readers are, at least some of them. With uh, unusual zeal and wisdom, the author then exhorts his readers to hold fast to their original confession. He exhorts them to remember who Christ is and to live the Christian life that he rescued them to live. It all starts with getting a clear picture of who Jesus truly is. Thinking of this context, the danger of drifting under persecution, under the difficulties of the Christian walk, and to know here's where the author starts. Here's the opening sentence that encapsulates the book in some sense and starts us where we need to be. Long ago, At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Jesus is the personification of God's revealed word to his people. Let's consider again this first uh, verse. Long ago, at many times and many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Let's stop, step back and just contemplate that statement. We worship a God who speaks. He communicates truth to His people by means of words. This means in part that the Christian life, we must grasp this, the Christian life is always top-down. It is always God moving into our world. Everything starts with God. God above reveals truth to us below, and we are privileged to live in light of that revealed truth. By contrast, particularly in our Western setting, the orientation is always bottom-up. Even many professing Christians perceive the Christian life as primarily a series of subjective spiritual experiences. So they start with doing things. And they start with believing things in order to tap into the divine realm. I do this, I do this, I discover this, and I get some of the divine. It's a bottom up. They might seek ecstasy in a worship experience or a healing service. Finding secret wisdom to determine God's will concerning a difficult decision. Or it might be hidden information in current events to determine the timing of Jesus' return. Or finding supposedly common grace wisdom in some therapeutic scheme or program or social justice or whatever it is. Some sort of idea and scheme that will help us get an advantage and move toward the divine. Biblical Christianity is always top-down. The orientation is not the upward reach on man's initiative and according to man's ingenuity to tap the divine, biblical Christianity is oriented to hearing the revealed words of God. To hear God's mind and to learn to think His thoughts after Him. To obey those words with joy. That's the orientation and the direction of the life that Jesus has given his people. So I'm not called to construct my own reality, to determine what I believe is right for me, to discover my truth. Rather, I'm called to know the truth, to hear the word of the living God. Our task is to learn to think God's thoughts, to know what he has said, to live on his terms and to serve his purposes for the honor of his name in this dying world. Let's get back to the text. God has revealed his will to his people in many different ways at various points in salvation history. We know this as we know our Old Testament scriptures. We find in the Old Testament that he reveals his will to his people in dreams, in visions, in stories, in commands, in warnings, in miracles, theophanies, That is, objectification in the present of the divine person. These types of things. On rare occasion, God even speaks from heaven. But generally speaking, if you boil it down, God revealed his word through prophets. That is, men and women chosen by God to declare his truth to his people. And none of these prophets was perfect. Some of them were even morally corrupt and failed to represent God, and some of them were so wicked as to be judged by God in death. But many of them spoke the truth of God, declared God's truth to His people under the Old Covenant. That's how God worked through these prophets to reveal the truth from above to His people on earth. But... Verse 2, in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. These last days, that's not a chronological note, but an eschatological note. That is, the last days refer to the salvation era that started with the first coming of Christ. In these last days, God is speaking to us not by a multiplicity of prophets scattered across the ages, but in his Son. Note again that He has spoken to us. The pinnacle of God's revelatory works are personified in a son. Not in audible messages, miracles, dreams, visions, or prophecies, but now in a person. Now it's true that tongues and prophecies continued after Jesus' birth and ministry. However, these, continu- these, uh, these means of revelation were intended to authenticate those who spoke with authority for Jesus as the early church took root. Today, God's revelatory work is personified in the man, Jesus. And that revelation of who he is in his person is encoded in the New Testament scriptures. We don't look to the New Testament scriptures as everything that Jesus said what his apostles said, what those who knew him said, those who explained what he taught. Yet in its total, all of the New Testament, these are the words of Christ. This is the teaching of Christ and the revelation. Now there's a technicality here I want to draw your attention to with this idea of son. Technically, it's not through the son, but it is technically in a son. No longer by prophets, but now in Son. Capital S O N. That is now how God reveals Himself to us in the ultimate sense at this point. The meaning of Son is really problematic. Because from a Western perspective, son almost always speaks of physical descent. I have three sons. Everybody knows intuitively what that means when I say that. But in the pre-industrialized ancient Near Eastern world, people did not understand the word son as we do. And so they might say, you have three sons, and ask, what do they do? And you might think that he's assuming they're, they're my children, but he's actually looking at function. For them, son spoke more of status and of occupation. The key was that a son did what his father did. Now, in that world, that made perfect sense because almost every son learned his father's trade, whatever it was. He was, for example, the son of a stonemason, which meant he had learned the trade from his father and only then would the community refer to him as the stonemason's son because now he's doing what the Father did, or does. So when when we read here that God communicates to his people, he has spoken now in a son, that is, he is speaking to us in the one who does what the Father does. And I mean completely so. He does all that God does. And so the Son personifies and perfectly reveals the Father's will. Now at this point, the author digs in deep, explaining with great precision who Jesus is. He is the personification, the enfleshment of God's revealed word to his people. Secondly, Jesus is the personification or infleshment of all that God is and does. That's the idea of son, which he'll now develop here, beginning in verse 2. This son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he, all, he created the world, He is the radiance of the glory of the God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. That is what you call a mouthful. And all eternity will be plumbing the depths of a statement such as this. Verse 2, He appointed heir of all things. Jesus Christ is absolute authority over all the universe, and thus superior to all of creation. He's not part of creation, but is superior to it. This is fitting and even necessary because through Him, also He created the world. There are churches today that have a perception of Jesus as a nice guy, a wonderful social worker with a few really cool ideas. They've come into this church having never heard all their life in these churches that Jesus is creator. Why is that? Because there's a perception of Jesus that's not accurate. John 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. A reference to Jesus, as you can read the whole chapter, especially down to verse 14. All things were made through Him. He is the Creator of all. Colossians 1, speaking of the Beloved Son there in verse 13, verse 16, for by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth. At the end of verse 16, all things were created through Him and for Him. Through the beloved Son, everything was created that's been created. Notice how Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 8. There is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things and through whom we exist. What the Father does, the Son does. Very clear here. The thinking of John 1, nothing was created that Christ did not create. Therefore Christ was not created. He's only the Creator. There is only one God, 1 Corinthians 8.6, And yet, the Lord Jesus Christ is the one through whom are all things. So we say it this way, and it's beautiful in the expression from the Nicene Creed this morning to just refresh our minds in this. But there is only one God. There are not three gods, there is one. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God. Yet the Father and the Son are distinct persons within the triune being. This isn't what we come up with. This isn't something we can ultimately fully grasp. But what we do here as we understand Trinitarian doctrine is we receive the truth from above. It's our task to work to understand it, to work it out, and to submit to it doesn't start with our wisdom. It starts with what God has revealed. There is only one God. And Jesus is not the Father, but is God. We believe it. We trust it. We hear His word. Through Him, all things were created. Verse 3, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. The radiance of the glory of God, the glory of God refers to the brilliant light that objectifies His presence. Jesus is the brightness of the light. How do you divide the brightness from the light? It's impossible. It's the idea here is that He radiates all that God is and does. The early church fathers noted in the Nicene Creed that we recited today notes. That light and brilliance are inseparable. You cannot separate the light of the sun from its radiance or its brilliance. In a similar but more profound sense, it is impossible to separate the being of the Father from that of the Son. The Son radiates the glory of God as light radiates from the Son. And He is the exact imprint of His nature. Here the emphasis falls on the distinction. The Father and the Son share the same nature, however. However, the Father is God, the Son is God, there is only one God. But Jesus is the exact personification of the invisible God, and so he shares the Father's nature. He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. Was God created? No. Is he eternal? Yes. Jesus shares that same nature. If Jesus is a created being, he's not eternal. And if he's not eternal, then he does not share the Father's eternal nature. But Jesus personifies God's nature. Thus, Jesus is the uncreated creator. He is also the sustainer and governor of the created order. We see here also in verse 3. By the word of his power, He upholds the universe. There's only one reason that our universe does not descend into utter chaos in an instant. The Lord Jesus Christ spoke it into existence. And until He orders otherwise, the universe will stand by His decree. In a manner of speaking this morning, just in a manner of speaking, but in a manner of speaking this morning, Jesus met the dawn and said, Stay where you are. Stay where you are. Live another day. And there's a day when it will be destroyed, a day when he will melt it in destruction. But this morning, so to speak, at the dawn, he stood and said, Stay. Not only is Jesus the Lord of creation, he's also the Lord of the new creation. The author says, after making, verse 3, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Making purification for sin, of course a reference to Jesus, sacrificial death in the place of sinners to pay the penalty of sin for all who place their trust in him as Savior, for all who are his people. Much more will be said about this theme in the rest of the book, but we see here why the eternal Son of the triune being, fully in nature God, took on flesh and became man. The only way Jesus could pay the cost of our sin, which is physical death, was to become physical. To take on a real body that could die. So in addition to his deity, Jesus took on human flesh and died a physical death in the place of sinners. Remember, death isn't ceasing to exist. But the separation of the human spirit from the human body, Jesus took on flesh so that he could pay that penalty. For those of you who have not come to embrace Christ as your Savior, you've not been born again by His Spirit entrusting this message of His death and resurrection, let me say to you, this is where it starts. You're looking at it right here. You do not need to know everything about Jesus. You say, my head's swimming right now on some of these things. This is deep stuff. You don't have to know all of this for a test. What you need to know is that God, very God, in the person of the Son, took on flesh to die in your place on the cross. That's what you must trust. Start there. He died to cleanse you from your sin, from living as if God is not glorious. And if the lights are coming on here just a bit to say He's a glorious God, you know you don't live that way. You don't announce that, but the words that you speak, the thoughts that go through your mind, the way that you treat people, that He is all-glorious creator and sustainer. Here's where it starts. You need a sacrifice for that sin. You need one to die in your place or to spend eternity separated from Christ. So the call is simply to repent of sin and trust Him. But let's stop for a moment again and just consider that only an infinite being could pay the infinite consequences of sin. If Jesus was created, a finite being died for us, and his sacrifice would thus be temporal, not eternal. Let's also note that Jesus, who was by nature truly God, became also then by nature truly man in one person. Two distinct natures, one indivisible person. It exceeds our mental capacities to grasp it all. But we are staring into the face of unparalleled splendor. You're not going to think of anything deeper today than that. After humbling himself to die on the cross, we read here that he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. A place of exaltation, A place of reigning with authority. The majesty on high, a reference to the Father. And, verse 4, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. We'll get to the angels, Lord willing, in the future here. But having become superior is not that Jesus became God upon his resurrection. There's a heresy known as dynamic monarchianism. Aren't you glad you don't hold to that view? But the idea was that when Jesus rose from the dead, then he became God. I mean, it is utterly ridiculous. How does a man become God? Did a man become retroactively the creator of the universe on the day that he rose from the dead? I mean, it's just utter foolishness. God can take on humanity, but no human being can take on divinity because the finite cannot become infinite no matter what happens. If there is a time when Jesus did not exist, he cannot become a being who always existed. And that is the nature of God, to always exist. So, the point is here in verse 4 when it says, having become, having become as much superior to the angels, this is in his humanity. This is in the recognition of those who see that at his resurrection, he is indeed Lord of life. And the name here is not Jesus as such, but a reference to his status, his rank, his reputation. Again, more on angels next week, but here the point is that Jesus is superior to the highest of all created beings because he was not created. He is their creator. You say, this is, there's a lot here. This is dense and thick. It is. We're looking at a being of splendor that is beyond our capacity to grasp. But we come back to the question that we must all ask, and that is, Who is Jesus Christ? Who do you know him to be? No question is more decisive to who you are, how you live, how you will die, or where you will spend eternity. What we discover in this passage is that he is the personification of God's Word. The sovereign Lord of all, the creator and sustainer of the universe, the radiance and exact imprint of God's very nature. He is all that God is and does, and all that God does as the second person of the triune being. He is our Redeemer who took on flesh, who died to bear the penalty of sin and rose from the dead. He is the name that is above all names. This is the Jesus we sing about. This is the Jesus we worship. This is the Jesus we know. But if you believe Jesus was just a man, he was a good teacher, a nice guy, may I submit that you do not know who Jesus is. And if you're struggling to believe that maybe the Christian life's not worth the hassle, you're weary... You're tired of being an outcast in this world? Get a fresh look at who Jesus is and all his glory. Don't drift away from this Savior. There's others who come in at this point and counsel us and say, Eden Baptist Church, come on. This stuff, this is, is not practical. How's this going to change tomorrow? What's this going to have to do with your life? We need to get to the practical matters of the Christian life and leave all this deep theology stuff aside. Well, I'm telling family stories here, so here's another one. Ethan and I had the privilege to to minister in Mozambique some years ago, and we were in a spot where like, you had to drive a very long ways to find electricity. It was the darkest spot on earth that we'd ever been. And as we stood there one night, no lights anywhere. We looked up into a clear night sky and seen stars like we'd never seen them before. They weren't like, you see here, the individual pinpricks of light. It was like whitewash. It was so, so many stars. So beautiful. As we're looking at that and thinking of our Creator's majesty, can you imagine the conversation? You know, this is, this is great, but it's really not very practical. Like it's not going to do anything to help us, you know, finish out this trip, or it just doesn't do anything. It's just not practical. What it was was stunning wonder. What it was was glory. It spoke of the Creator in a way that changes everything that's practical in your life. And far more gloriously stands the Lord Jesus Christ before our church today. And we look at this wonder, and we should, standing here on holy ground, be awestruck by what we see. Practical. This changes everything. We have theology, the knowledge of God revealed from above in a way that fuels Christian practice. This is where the author starts, and by the way, not really probably a letter, but more a sermon that was written out and read in varying churches. He starts his sermon here with this majestic vision of God. And you read chapter 13. He takes it into the bedroom. There's such practical things in chapter 13 But you can't get to the practical if you don't see the vision of who Jesus is. And if you do and are awestruck, it will change every aspect of your life. This is no waste of time. This is not beyond use. So what do we say to churches that teach Little Bible That scoff at doctrine, that remind us that people don't have the interest or the capacities to think so deeply about doctrine. They're worried about their daily lives. What do we say to them? We say this with respect. But no local church is so lifeless as the church without rich theological contemplation of Christ and the truth that he reveals. Reading in the commentary by Guthrie quotes Dorothy Sayer. I do not know who she is but I like what she said here. She says this, the Christian faith is the most exciting drama that ever staggered the imagination of man. And the dogma is the drama. The two natures in one person, the son doing what the father does and sharing his nature as creator, sustainer, taking on flesh as redeemer, that's the dogma. And in the dogma is the drama is the splendor, is the beauty of what God is and does for his people. She addresses churches that think theology and deep dives into scripture are unimportant in comparison with worship, by which people simply usually just mean singing songs I like. She says the only drawback to this demand for a generalized, undirected worship is the practical difficulty of arousing any sort of enthusiasm for the worship of nothing in particular. And so we say, as a church, fill the singing of God's people with depth. Teach theology through what we sing. Teach of Christ through what we sing Not just throw up words that can mean different things to different people and have no roots. If you get Jesus wrong, you get salvation wrong. And if you get salvation wrong, you cannot live the Christian life with any satisfaction or victory over sin. Indeed, you will very conceivably drift away. But if you are coming to see the true Jesus in the pages of Scripture, take heart if you say, my head's spinning. I, 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 don't, I don't grab it all. If I had got this on a test, I think I'd get some things wrong. Take heart. You're just looking into the sky. You're seeing the beauty of the stars. You're saying, I don't want to drift away from this. And as you're growing Jesus, as you're coming to know Jesus, the true Jesus in the pages of Scripture, the revelation of that truth is yielding this increasing wonder that transforms how you live. Jesus grows grander and more glorious with each passing year of your pilgrimage home. And by the grace of God, the Christian life then does not grow wearisome. But it grows through the trials and difficulties and the ostracism from this world and the ridicule. It grows strangely satisfying and fruitful. So let's join together, Church of Christ, and pray for one another that this clear vision of a glorious Savior will be seen in our eyes. Let's pray for one another that this becomes our persistent experience in our life together as the church of the risen, reigning, and returning Savior. Let's pray. And Lord, to that end, we do pray. I ask that you would do sanctifying work in the lives of this assembly through what we've considered here today. Human words and my incapacities, I know, are a hindrance in many ways. We cannot fully perceive all that is here in Christ, but we see the splendor. As we look into the night sky and see stars in a majesty that we can't, we don't know how far they are. We can't perceive it. We don't know how they work. We don't know how they come ultimately into being or out of being. We just look at glory, and we praise your name. And so it is with Jesus. We know we cannot plumb the depths of his nature and his work, but we're in awe. And I pray that you would deepen this church's perception of the one true and living God, personified in the incarnate eternal Son, who of God's very nature took on flesh to die in our place. And as many of us gather tonight around the Lord's table and remember His death until He comes, I pray, Father, that there would be a depth that continues to take hold as we contemplate this sacrifice for sin. It's our sin. We are not glorious. And a theology from below looks utterly ridiculous right now. May it always look that way to us. And may we turn our minds to consider the truth that you've revealed in the Son. Draw us to yourself and draw to saving faith in Jesus. Those who do not realize, have not embraced the fact that he is the Savior, and the joy of their souls. Bring us to Jesus today, we pray, through Christ.